This week on InfoSec Sync, Facebook taps into NFC for strong account security. Matt talks car cybersecurity. We discuss 2016 data breaches, European cyber storms, Android VPNs, Ashton Kutcher, cybersecurity hero, and a fake Netflix app. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSec Sync. Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H.net. And now, with Stories of the Week ending January 27th, 2017. What's up, InfoSec Sync fam? How are you guys doing? Welcome to our 28th episode. We got a lot to talk about this week, right? We have a lot of InfoSec topics to cover, Matt. Let's go ahead and start with, we'll jump right in. Um, We'll start with the NFC, um, the Facebook piece. Wait, So NFC, um, like uh, football? NFC? No. (laughs) What are you talking, NFC? Near field communication. Oh, okay. Near field communication. Got it. Right, right. So Facebook taps into NFC and Android phones for strong account security. So Android users can now use wireless security keys to safeguard their accounts with two-factor authentication. We hear a lot about two-factor authentication these days, an invaluable way to protect your account from someone who has stolen your password, but there's an inherent wrinkle built into the system, SMS. For most two-factor authentication setups, They use text messages to deliver a one-time code sent to your phone. But there's an issue with that system. For one, it requires a cell connection. And for another, text can be intercepted. Granted, there is a small window of opportunity for attackers, but Facebook wants to close all the way, any gaps. So to secure accounts even further, it has begun rolling out support for security keys into its account login protection eliminating SMS from the equation, and letting users lock down their accounts with fast, foolproof 2FA methods. And for Android users with one of the newer NFC-capable phones, it's even easier. So starting today, you can register a physical security key to your account so the next time you log in after enabling login approvals, you'll simply tap a small hardware device that goes into the USB drive of your computer, Facebook security engineer Brad Hill wrote in a post. Your login is practically immune to phishing because you don't have to enter a code yourself, and the hardware provides cryptographic proof that it's in your machine. So, um, Facebook, if you have an NFC equipped Facebook or an NFC equipped Android phone, you can use YubiKey Neo to instantly authenticate to your Facebook account. Since it's a new feature, it only works with the latest version of Chrome or Opera on a PC, and it's it isn't yet supported by the mobile Facebook app. However, as X Hill writes, if you have an NFC chip in your Android phone, you can download the latest version of Chrome and Google Authenticator in the Play Store and use your key to wirelessly unlock your account. Yubico's security keys start at $18, but the NFC-equipped 
UFC, UB Key Neo uh, costs $50. However, they aren't just useful for Facebook. Security keys work with a variety of accounts, including Google, Dropbox, GitHub, through, though the implementation may vary, especially over near-field communication. The impact on you at home. Securing online accounts should be a top priority for anyone who posts and shares personal information over social media or email, which is pretty much everyone. But far too few people understand just how important it is. While it is unlikely that this method may have an immediate measurable effect on Facebook users, it's a glimpse at how serious the social media giant is about security and how two-factor authentication could become much more commonplace in the future. So... This story, Facebook taps into NFC and Android phones for strong account security, was originally published by Greenbot, and we got it off of Security Week. But um, what are your thoughts, Nick? Um, I think it is very good to have the two-factor authentication. Um, I think it's weird that the uh, the difference in price between $18 and uh, $50, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, and I think uh, people should take advantage of that. Right, because it's one of three things right now. It's either something you know, something you have, or something you are. Absolutely. So, what if um, I'm all three? Then I'm exactly. it, right? <laughs> three factor authentication. Um, I think in the future, what I foresee with mobile devices is have you ever heard of biohacking? Yes, I have. So, with biohacking, that's where you can implant devices into your body. And usually they do like LEDs, um, some will do RFID chips, um, like a whole bunch of other stuff. But if you could imagine, either right now you would have something in your wallet, but just think you could have something implanted into your fingertip that's like a small chip, like a near-field communication chip. And it's not only using your fingerprint, but it's also using that chip up underneath. And... It will also ask you something that you know. So you could implement three-factor authentication. And have like, a retina scan, too. Yeah, you could have that as well. That'd be cool. But So that's two something you are's. Um, something you have, which would be the chip. And then something you know would be either a security question or select a picture, you know, you know how on some um, account procedures for login, it asks you to select a picture that's associated with the account, like you selected at one time. Right. And it's usually like a bird or like um, a waterfall or something. It'll say, and, it'll say pick uh, out of this image, pick where the water is or whatever, or where's right. the well, bird in not, this picture. Right. It's not like capture or anything, but it's like something you would pick that somebody else probably wouldn't pick. Right. And so that could be something you know. Um, because so you would pick it, the bird? No, <laughs> I probably wouldn't pick the bird. But you know, it would depend what's there, right? And I would have to associate that with the account. So I would pick something that you wouldn't actually, pick the raven. I wouldn't pick the raven, but I would pick something that I wouldn't normally pick, and then I would like, I don't know, kind of like keep it in the back of mind that for this account, it's the opposite. But it's better than passwords. I mean. With passwords, you can only have so many, if it's user generated, you can only have so many characters that you're going to remember as a passphrase. Right. And then you throw in the uppercase, lowercase with the password complexity and the special characters. 
there's only so much you can do with that. Plus, it can be broken by brute force. And if you happen to get hacked, people are going to know, okay, Matt Morris, he likes cars. So when they get a... Uh, when they get the picture, and they're like, oh, he likes cars, he likes cars, pick the car. Nope, not this time. Right, exactly. So, I don't know. I think we're going to see um, kind of like, not a reform, but definitely a lot, people getting a lot more creative with how they're securing accounts and for authentication. Mm-hmm. And then authorization. Authorization is a big thing as well. That is left out of the equation right now, but... Right now, when you authenticate to particular apps, you also authorize it to do things as in doing single sign-on with other applications on your phone yeah. or um, to do things on behalf of you. A good example of that would be uh, Facebook. Oh, right? yeah. Facebook's uh, well-known for that. It, it You know, you, you pick the app and it's like, hey, I'm going to look at your friends and all this other stuff as well. Is that okay? But I'm going to give you this cool thing that you want. Right. But not only that, but... It also integrates with like Twitter and Instagram. Yep. So there's a single sign-on that happens between because if you remember, you don't sign into those other services typically because you've already signed into the app and there's like a token right associated with your device. So it just asks if it um, if it could uh, you know use that previously known um, so, authentication yeah. that's in there to you know, to like say, Hey, can I post things on Twitter on your behalf? So you don't have to go into Twitter when you, you post put the password in and you right. forget the password and all that stuff. Right. Or even just opening the Twitter app. It, you don't even have to do that anymore. Facebook will do that for you. So authentication is a big thing, but the next thing we probably need to start looking at is authorization because how often do you revisit the authorization that you give another app to do things on behalf of you? People don't revisit it. Right. And that's a big problem. It's so convenient, you know, convenience and security don't mix. Right. And, you know, that that's what an attacker is looking at. It's like, all right, how many social media platforms does this person touch? Okay. Well, if I can't guess their password in this, um, let's just kind of go, like, and figure out if I can get into the Twitter and then or into the phone. Right. And then now I can get into Twitter and see if they have, you know, any authorizations for Facebook and now I can get into the Facebook um, piece of it. So it's definitely very interesting, but I think a lot of people kind of focus on authentication, right? But authorization is also a big issue as well, especially with um, cars these days too. Oh yeah. Because that's a static key. It's all, it's always going to be like that for, for those who are uh, technically sound and, you know, want to get in uh, without, putting a key in and just touching and you know people want uh internet in their car they just want the latest coolest thing right but right and some of them are um some of them are like some of the manufacturers are using um an encryption for the token that's in your pocket um or like the keyless entry yeah because that's the, that's the token in your pocket that's what i think of right 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 so once you get up to the car, you put your hand on the handle, it opens, you get in, you just push to start, but then there's a whole nother piece of it, and you raise a good point there. When you look at the car, there's also, um, we've seen it with, um, what is it, Jeep and Chrysler in the past, I believe, mm-hmm. um, where they had the, or was it Dodge? It was one of the, it was Jeep or Dodge. I don't remember which one it was. But either way, they had the um, infotainment system, 
in the vehicle that was connected to the internet. And, you know, the security researchers were able to get onto that device, onto the CAN bus. Now you have a much bigger problem. But there's, like, distinct problems that are different from each other, right? The physical access into the car is different than me gaining access to the infotainment system to get on the CAN bus. But it's all dealing with a car and automotive and the automotive industry. So there definitely are a number of, of problems there. And that, I mean, you're not restricting privilege. So me being on the infotainment system with that not being sectioned off. It's wide right, open. It's wide open. Yeah. So either way, definitely a lot of questions um, out there to be asked and hopefully they can be answered. But so it, are, is, it is very cool. Are you worried about cybersecurity in the connected car? I am. But the thing is, Car manufacturers right now um, typically have one thing in mind, and that's cost. So uh, a company that I do like, and I'm not plugging them for any particular reason, but um, Tesla. You know, I think I think Tesla is a is a very good example of a company that because um, right now they're saying when you buy a vehicle, you know, we have. The vehicle is going to be connected to the internet, but we're going to constantly update that vehicle. Whereas other car manufacturers, you have to go back to the dealer, and part of your regularly scheduled service is when they update the ECU and the firmware of the vehicle. With Tesla, that that stuff happens on the fly. You know, um, when you plug in the car at night for it to charge, that's when you're getting your updates. You don't have to bring it into the Tesla dealer because. Um, I mean, frankly, when do you bring a Tesla into the dealer besides when you need brakes and tires? You're not doing the oil changes and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's different. The landscape is different, and I think Tesla was able to see that and change it. A lot of car manufacturers tried to go and rush connecting the vehicles to the Internet, and I don't think they understood the set of issues um, that come from that. And the issues are mostly how are you handling your configuration management, right? How are we identifying problems um, with the software and the network as a whole, and how are we fixing them in a timely fashion? Mm -hmm. I don't think those questions were answered um, very well, and it was rushed to market, and cost was in mind. So therefore, uh, the security researchers basically said, all right, um, we can't get to this system or the infotainment system if we're on another network. Let's get onto the Sprint network. So they bought like pay-as-you-go phones and got on the Sprint network, um, and we're because that's who the service provider was for the infotainment systems, like the point of presence for the IP addresses for them. At the time, it was Sprint. Yeah, I believe at the time it was Sprint, if I'm not mistaken. But either way, it was a a specific carrier. So they got pay-as-you-go phones on that specific carrier got IPs, and were able to attack the infotainment system. So it's almost like somebody saying, I'm going to VLAN this off, and that's 100% secure. <laughs> right. Or I'm going to use this, I'm going to use IP segmentation as a form of security. That's like security through obscurity. It's not real security. It doesn't stand on its own. Um, so I'm really happy that, well, let's see, it was um, Dodge... Either way, I'll I'll find it. When you cover your story, I'll find out 
what it um what the two security researchers are and shout them out but it was definitely really cool to see that but a lot of car manufacturers definitely need to be thinking not cost all right i, I want to keep my cost low and my margins as high as possible for profit but also i'm trying to figure out with the consumer how am i going to keep them as safe as possible from software security vulnerabilities in their vehicle and i mean come on now a car company is not a software security company. They're not a software company. They're not Microsoft. Agreed. They're not, you know, they, they don't know. They're not Apple. They're not all these different companies, Google, where they have to say, all right, we're going to release a product, but this is how we're going to maintain that product um, from initial operating capacity to final operating capacity to FOC when we decommission it. That They don't have that um planned out they have it from a model year standpoint with cars like all right we're not talking about like the airbag issue if you remember with honda so how they handled the airbag issue with takata was they brought all the vehicles in and replaced the airbags they would treat a software security vulnerability the same way bring all your cars in when you can plug them in we'll do an upgrade you're gone right it'll take you an hour Mm -hmm. That doesn't that 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 is not good at all. You have to build in a mechanism so that you can upgrade these softwares and firmwares on the fly. So, you know, car man, and that additional cost for development of that vehicle and those systems within the vehicle. So building uh, cybersecurity in from the beginning. Exactly. So having security and software security engineering, um, hardware security engineering. Um, security engineering in general from the beginning and developing the architecture in a secure fashion from the beginning instead of trying to tack something on at the at the end. So basically utilizing the system development life cycle <laughs> from right. the get-go. Yeah. Um, Not the, after the car was built. Exactly. So SDLC, um, IATF, the Information Assurance Technical Framework. Right. Um, one of those frameworks just implementing that so like you said we can think of security at the beginning when we're developing requirements for the project instead of when the project is done like oh crap you thinking of security as a checkbox you know that's not necessarily going to get you anywhere thinking of it as all right we need to do this to protect the consumer that's your mission right as a as a vehicle manufacturer oh, yeah you don't want to get sued for something like that so matt what do you mm-hmm. think about um you're talking about frameworks right what do you think about an RMF framework inside of a, a car? So you can, I mean, you could apply the risk management framework to that, definitely. Um, so what I would have is like production where you have your actual vehicles that are deployed and then like a dev and test where you have your development and tests for upcoming model years and different software upgrades that you want to do. And Basically, with the RMF, you would be able to categorize, select, and implement. But then, with the latter three, the assess, authorize, and monitor steps, that is kind of where your bread and butter is because you're defining the set of security controls that need to be implemented for a vehicle, and you are assessing the implementation of that. So, because the requirements are defined with security sitting at the table as well, we're able to say, hey, we want to put in an infotainment system that's connected to the internet. Then you look at your security people and you say, hey, you know, from a security standpoint, 
what vulnerabilities could be there. Then we can start to look at data, you know, systems diagrams, what data flow is happening, if it's on the CAN bus network, how those things are segmented. Then we can suggest from a security standpoint what needs to happen. That can be implemented, but that's when you have your assess, right? Now, the authorize and monitor phase, yeah, we're not giving an approval to operate. It's more so an approval for release, right? So you're not just doing um, software releases at that stage. This is for actual development and building of the car and you know having these systems integrated into the vehicle. Now, the software development piece and doing upgrades when the vehicle is deployed, that all will happen within continuous monitoring. But, and that's the last phase of the RMF, but you would have your steps defined for how you handle configuration management, change management, and if there's, let's say they have a new infotainment system that's developed and retrofitted into previous model years, now we're, develop, we're, now we're able to determine the security relevancy of those changes and change requirements if need be um, from a security standpoint. So you definitely could apply an RMF-like approach. It would be modified a bit, but and yeah, I, definitely. I, I you think you'd also it. have to include a, some sort of a secure supply chain or secure supply chain management um, Absolutely. For, for the stuff coming in before that. But um, uh, we got to go p uh, pay the bills right now. We'll be right back after this. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And we're back to InfoSec Sync. So, Nick, while we're on break, um, I did mention that, you know, uh, Fiat Chrysler had experienced this in the past. Right. So it was uh, July 2015. Mm -hmm. 1.4 million Fiat vehicles were recalled for hacking concerns. That's a lot of vehicles. Yep. Yeah, and it covered um, 2013 to 2015 model years. And Wired actually had the story, and they uh, hackers. It, the name of it was "Hackers Remotely Kill a Jeep on the Highway," mm -hmm. and uh, the two security researchers were Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek. So shout out to them, very cool stuff. And on the topic of uh, cybersecurity for the connected car, do you have something for us? Yeah. So this week, um, there's a bill for that. Actually, the bipartisan legislation wants to identify best practices and ways to ward off threats. So the bill was introduced in the House of Representatives on Wednesday with a major focus on automotive security. The Security and Privacy in Your Car Act of 2017, it's called SPY Car Study Act for short. It's co-sponsored by two reps, Joe Wilson, who's a rep out of South Carolina, and Ted Liu, a Democrat out of California. The bill would require the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, together with the Federal Trade Commission, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, the Department of Defense, OEMs and suppliers, SAE International, and academics and other experts 
like InfoSec Sync, to come up with a set of appropriate cybersecurity standards for new vehicles. Without good hygiene, a hacker could easily turn a car into a weapon, Representative Liu said. The Spy Car Act study builds on important work undertaken by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration by emphasizing the protection of users' personal data and developing clear timelines for implementing these standards. We need to know that our navigation, entertainment, like Matt said, and operating systems are safe and that our data is kept private. We must be proactive about our privacy and security now more than ever. His co-sponsor, Representative Wilson, struck a similar tone. Cyber threats have the potential to threaten the safety of American families. In the past few months, we've seen widespread reports of how cyber vulnerabilities in vehicles allow hackers to access a vehicle and take control from the driver. By conducting a thorough study of isolation measures, detection protocol, and other best practices, we can bring industry, advocates, and government together to encourage innovation while ensuring consumer protection. So Matt, this just bakes in what you said earlier about cybersecurity um, in the car, uh, utilizing frameworks, best practices, the best people. You saw all those um, standards and technology, DOD, all those people working together to help protect the American citizen. Right. And, you know, we kind of touched on um, some different ways that uh, risk management framework, which is uh, currently implemented, um, for most of the federal government systems, DOD systems, DOE systems, Department of Agriculture, everybody implements it because NIST developed it. Um, but NIST 800-37, the RMF, can definitely be, um, you know, in some way, shape, or form applied. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we covered on it, so maybe <laughs> maybe these lawmakers will listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> some some breadcrumbs will be there. So, um. So, yeah, we've had a lot of breaches lately. Tell me about it. Well, there's breaches every week. <laughs> there's breaches every week. It's it's basically like, you remember Jimmy John's? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was the most epic one uh, for some funny, reason. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a Subway guy, but Jimmy John's is good, too. I just won't use my credit card there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 4.2 billion records uh, exposed in data breaches in 2016. There was a report. So... 2016 was a record year for data breaches as the number of exposed records exceeded 4.2 billion, which was nearly four times the previously set record. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, I think that's just going to get bigger every year. Probably. But the latest release of Risk-Based Security's annual data breach quick view report shows that there were 4,149 data breaches during 2016, down from 4,326 data breaches reported in 2015. The number of exposed records, however, which is, is interesting, reached an all-time high that might not be easily equated or equaled 4.281 billion. The previous record was established in 2013 at 1.106 billion. Hmm. Over half the compromised records came from MySpace and Yahoo last hold year. Hold on, hold on, hold on. MySpace. MySpace. Who has a MySpace anymore? So I know Justin I mean, had purchased that, but people are still using that, huh? I guess, well, I don't think it's necessarily people actively using it. They just have their old accounts on there. You know, that's funny because I have two old accounts on there, but you can't really get anything from it from me. No, and if you think of MySpace back in the day, like it wasn't, it wasn't a 
uh, it was good. It was good for social media. Don't get me wrong. But when the whole thing where you could put custom HTML in there, mm-hmm. like for your page and stuff, right? And then you would use the HTML creator for it, <laughs> yeah. From like some dicey sites, <laughs> right? You would add people. You would ask people, "Hey, man, how'd you do that? Can you send it to me?" Yeah, yeah. Like that's not a good idea, right. especially with what we've seen, like with um, you know, cross-site scripting, JavaScript injection. Like, there's a lot of things that can happen. But either way. So MySpace and Yahoo last year, Yahoo's pretty big as well. Um, <laughs> what would add to this if AOL was in it? But they're not. <laughs> so um, the former confirmed in May that over 400 million accounts were compromised in a data breach that took place in 2013, while the latter, Yahoo, uh, revealed two different hacking incidents, a 2014 one, which resulted in 500 million compromised accounts, and a 2013 one with over 1 billion compromised accounts however these weren't the only popular mail services to have suffered a massive data breaches that were reported last year mail.ru uh 25 million compromised records linkedin 167 million tumblr 65 million vk 170 million vertical scope 45 million and last.fm 43 million are also on the list in fact, the top 10 breaches in 2016 exposed a total of more than 3 billion records. You know, and for those people out there who, who have had these accounts on here, if you've actually been impacted by these breaches, can you can you send us an email and, and let us know? I'd like to know actually what happened. Um, so Nick Nick at uh, InfoSecSync or Matt at InfoSecSync or Feedback at InfoSecSync, because we're always hearing about these compromises and does it really do anything? Yeah, I mean... Did it do anything also, to you? Yeah, like, did it, you know, we want to hear, like, firsthand. Did, it, you, know, did oh. you financially, uh, something happen financially? Did people steal your um, contacts identity. and start mailing them or steal your identity? Right. Just curious to know. Yeah, it would definitely be, um, be cool to know. So, according to Risk-Based Securities Report... No less than 94 breaches in 2016 had exposed 1 million or more records. However, 50.4 of the data breaches reported last year exposed only between 1 and 10,000 records, while 37.2% of them exposed less than 1,000 records. Businesses, 80.9% of the number of records exposed, and government, 5.6% sectors were hit the most in last year's incidents with the medical industry at 0.3% and education less than 0.1% next on the list. A great amount of breaches hit unknown industries, which was 13.1% of the exposed records. The report notes that 53.3% of the breaches were a result of hacking operations that they accounted for 91.9% of the exposed records. Malware accounted for 4.5% of the data breaches, but only 0.4% of the compromised records were affected. Misconfigured database and other inadvertent web-based disclosures exposed over 253 million records in 2016, and that was all in the report. Breaches, okay, so there's a lot of percentages, there's a lot of things on here, but only 18.3% of incidents reported last year were a result of insider activity, including accidental, malicious, and unknown intent. And email addresses were exposed in 42.6% of data breaches, with emails and passwords considered the prize targets for these incidents. In fact, 
the number of impacted fast words skyrocketed last year, which reached 3.2 billion. Although it was only, it was of only 151 million in 2015. With 102 countries reporting at least one data breach in 2016, risk-based securities research suggests that no industry, organization, size, or geographic location is immune to a data breach. The total number of reported breaches tracked by risk-based security has exceeded 23,700, exposing over 9.2 billion records. So, a lot of records, a lot of numbers, a lot of percentages. I think they definitely put this thing to rest. Um yeah, they hit it. They hit it from a lot of avenues. I hope um, the companies out there have some sort of information security awareness training um, that that they use, that they make people aware. I know a lot of people just click on on links instead of hovering over to see what it is, or right clicking and copy the link and going to some site like Virus Total to see if the link's okay. Just so basically, yeah. you're saying the individuals internal to these companies, yeah. That got breached. Because the thing, yeah, that makes sense. Because the thing is, like, they're, you know, you're not going to be able to brute force all these accounts. You're going to have to get in through through the inside, the internal LAN or whatever. Um, You're going to have to get in that boundary to get to the databases and things of that nature. So, yeah, absolutely. You got to make sure that, because your your employees are going to be on the front line. They're going to be the ones that are checking email that have dual homed, you know, um, systems or, you know, they have systems where they're checking their own email, the personal email or the business email or whatever. Right. And then they could also be connected to internal systems as well. Um, so it's definitely a high risk. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people are cyber aware, you know, especially in our industry and infosec, uh, people, but there's still a lot of people out there that are either new to it or information security, um, that don't know those things, but you know, hopefully we can change that. <laughs> so, um, I agree. I, our next story has to do with Europe. You've been to Europe lately, Matt. I have not been to Europe lately. Well, there's but what's going on there? <laughs> there's a report that came out that said there's a perfect cyberstorm awaiting and threatening Europe, and cyberstorm clouds are gathering over Europe on three fronts. Those fronts are a dramatically intensifying threat landscape, a profoundly changing regulatory landscape and the need for significantly more work from organizations to confront the combined challenge. This is the conclusion that FireEye draws from its own insights combined with the results of a preparedness study and survey of 750 European clients by Marsh and McClellan. Published under the title Cyber Threats, A Perfect Storm About to Hit Europe, the findings form the basis of a panel discussion at last week's World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Panel members comprise Tony Cole, who's the CTO of FireEye Global Government, Peter Bashar, he is the exec- Marsh Executive VP and General Counsel, and Robert Wainwright, the U- Europol Director. The first storm cloud uh, front in FireEye's perfect storm metaphor is the intensifying threat landscape. Hackers and purportedly nation states are increasingly targeting industrial control systems and networks power grids, chemical plants, aviation systems, transportation networks, telecom systems, financial networks, and even nuclear facilities. This is a reality facing most of the developed world that has such industries. It is not limited to Europe. 
FireEye names government, financial services, manufacturing, and telecom as the main targets for European cyber attacks. But again, this is a little different to the rest of the developed world. The report does, however, make one Europe-specific point. From May 2018, there will be a dramatic increase in the number of reported European breaches. This will follow the arrival of the new European General Protection Regulation. Under existing European data protection laws, there's little requirement for European organizations to make public breach notifications, and they tend not to. This will change with GDPR when notifications of personal data loss will be required. The U.S. already has a variety of breach notification requirements, but in general, GDPR will be even more strict. The effect will be similar to this year's U.K. crime stats that doubled over the previous year. There wasn't really such an increase in crime. It's just that cybercrime was included and therefore disclosed for the first time. Very interesting there. Under, Definitely. Yeah, under GDPR, companies will soon be required to publicly disclose data breaches to national data protection authorities and, notes the report, where the threat of harm is substantial to affected individuals. Failure to do so could result in fines as much as 4% of a company's global turnover. That's a huge sum of money. This must be done within 72 hours of the organization becoming aware of the breach, but it is not an absolute. There's an article 31.1 of the regulation that states notifications must be made unless the personal data breach is unlikely to result in a risk for the rights and freedoms of individuals. This suggests that if stolen personal data is adequately encrypted, the breach need not be notified. Now, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you don't need to tell us and who's, if, uh, does it does it specify an encryption level no and and who's going to be the person to uh to uh decide if it's a result results in risk for the rights and freedoms of individuals are they going to appoint somebody to yeah. be that czar wow so know. they they still have work there so moving on the gdpr places far-reaching requirements on the storage and protection of european personal data that go just beyond security. One particular aspect, the data subject's right to erasure, also called the right to be forgotten, will require organizations to know the location and have rapid access to every single piece of personal data they store anywhere in the world. The right to erasure is, again, not an absolute. It can be refused under certain circumstances, such as legal obligations and in the interest of public health. But these exemptions are not sufficient to allow an organization to ignore the requirement in total. GDPR is the second front in, Europe, in Europe's perfect storm described by FireEye. But GDPR doesn't just affect Europe. It affects any organization anywhere in the world that does business in Europe and collects European personal data. FireEye itself quotes Jan Philip Albrecht, Europe's GDPR reporter, the GDPR will change not only the European data protection laws, but nothing less than the whole world as we know it. So, like the threat landscape front, the second front also applies to the greater part of the developed world. FireEye's third front claims a general lack of preparedness against the first two. For this, the report draws on the research of Marsh. The study found that while high-profile events, government initiatives, and legislation have pushed cybersecurity to the forefront, far more work needs to be done. Again, the statement could be applied to just about any region in the world. 
Marsh found that the percentage of companies indicating that they assessed key suppliers for cyber risk actually decreased from 23% in 2015 to 20% in 2016. Proof of the importance of securing the supply chain comes from the U.S. As numerous attacks in the U.S. and elsewhere, elsewhere have shown, hackers often gain access to larger organizations by initiating attacks against smaller vendors that provide services like air conditioning or takeout food. Empirically then, poor preparedness in securing the supply chain can also be applied to the U.S. and elsewhere. So real interesting, they said air conditioning, Matt. <clears throat> the target breach, how did they get in? The third-party supplier, which was the HVAC company. Right. That's how they got in. <laughs> yeah, they just said, hey, let me uh, figure out how I'm going to get into this. And it's pretty much mapping out, right, what's connected to the network from their knowledge. And they said, oh, the HVAC people, let's do this. And they found it. So moving on, the goal of the paper, according to FireEye's Tony Cole, is to, quote, make the EU community more aware of emerging cyber threat storm clouds and encourage organizations to prioritize cyber defense by partnering with experts in industry and government. That's really good, Tony. The perfect storm is an interesting metaphor. Its validity could be debated, but it's used to highlight the combination of an intensifying threat landscape, an expanding regulatory framework, and a general lack of cybersecurity preparedness will present a major challenge to business in the coming years. While this may be true, it is a challenge that must be faced by the entire world. This perfect storm threatens all business and not just European business. I totally agree with that. Hang in there, folks. We'll be right back after this brief message from VicTech. VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation efforts. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. So, Nick, VPNs. Virtual private networks. Absolutely. You know you can have them on your phone, right? Sure enough. Show enough. Show so, enough. Android VPNs introduce security and privacy risks. So, study researchers have analyzed hundreds of VPN applications for Android and determined that many of them introduce serious privacy and security risks. So a term of ex or a team of experts from the University of California, Berkeley, the Data 61 Research Unit at Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Organization, CSIRO, and the University of New South Wales have analyzed 283 Google Play apps and requested the Bind VPN service that requests the Bind VPN service permission, which provides native support for VPN clients. So after running a series of passive and active tests, the researchers determined that while 67% of the analyzed apps claim to enhance privacy and security, three-quarters of them include third-party tracking libraries, and 82% of them request access to sensitive information such as text messages and user accounts. We were talking about that early on in the episode with authorization and ensuring that applications mm -hmm. only have the permissions that they need to operate. Yep. So... Um, 
Experts discovered that more than one-third of the Android VPN apps, including ones that are highly popular, appear to include some malicious code when tested with Google's Virus Total service. Yes, that's right. Google owns Virus Total. <laughs> <laughs> so, worryingly, a only a small number of users have raised security or privacy concerns in the comments posted to Google Play when reviewing these applications. So, Android VPN analysis. Another problem identified during the study is that 18% of the applications do not provide any information on the entity hosting the VPN server, and 16% of them forward traffic through the devices of other users, which can pose serious trust, privacy, and security issues, almost like Tor, right? Mm -hmm. With Tor endnodes, um, things of that nature. Furthermore, but this is different because it's with the VPN app, but... Furthermore, a small percentage of the apps implemented local proxies designed to inspect user traffic, mainly for filtering and security purposes. VPN applications are supposed to provide anonymity and security, but researchers found that 18% of the ones from the Google Play implement tunneling protocols without encryption, and many of them don't tunnel IPv6 and DNS traffic. Oh, wow. So, a small number of Android VPN apps have been found to intercept TLS traffic and even inject JavaScript code for advertising and tracking purposes. Wow. Researchers have contacted developers of the problematic apps, and while some of them confirmed the findings and provided arguments in support of their methods, others did not respond. So, the ability of the bind VPN service permission to break Android sandboxing and the naive perception that most users have about third-party VPN apps suggests that is urging to reconsider Android's VPN permission model to increase control over VPN clients, researchers wrote in their paper. Our analysis of the user reviews and ratings for VPN apps suggested that the vast majority of users remain unaware of such practices even when considering relatively popular apps. The complete paper titled an analysis of the privacy and security risk of Android VPN permission-enabled apps is available for download in PDF format um, on the Google Play Store. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you can you can pop it in Google and it'll be there. So, Ashton Kutcher. Yes. Did you hear about you know, this? I want to get I want to get to it, man. <laughs> What's going on with Ashton? So the news this week: Ashton Kutcher backs Sentinel One in seventy million dollar funding round. Um, Ashton Kutcher Sound Ventures invest in Sentinel One seventy million Series C funding round. So, endpoint security firm Sentinel One announced on Wednesday that it has raised seventy million in a Series C funding round led by VC firm Redpoint Ventures. The total amount raised by the Palo Alto, California-based cybersecurity company now tops a whopping one hundred and ten million dollars. The new funding will help the company expand its stake in the increasingly competitive next-generation endpoint security space. Sentinel-1, according to the company, the new cash pie will be used to aggressively expand its sales and marketing efforts with the goal of attaining more than 400% global sales growth this year. The funds will also be used to support research and development for its flagship platform. As traditional endpoint security firms upgrade their technology and so-called next-generation products look to strip incumbents from enterprise systems around the world, Sentinel-1 has found itself in a fierce battle with several security startups aiming to disrupt the endpoint security market. Silence and CrowdStrike, two other well-funded firms, are perhaps its biggest rivals. Silence has raised more than $177 million in funding, 
including a 100 million Series D round in June 2016 and 42 million in a Series C round in July 2015. CrowdStrike has raised roughly $156 million in funding, including a $100 million Series C financing round led by Google Capital in July of 2015. While Sentinel One took a job at other endpoint security firms touting security buzzwords such as machine learning in their marketing, the company itself is using the same terms in its own product description. Even vendors that are now touting machine learning-based file scanning and artificial intelligence capabilities are in fact pursuing a very narrow approach and only an incremental improvement, if any, to a much broader platform. Tomer Weingarten, co-founder and CEO of Sentinel One, said that in an announcement. However, in the same announcement, Sentinel One describes its platform as something that, quote, unifies endpoint threat prevention, detection, and response in a single platform driven by sophisticated machine learning and intelligent automation. Putting marketing chatter aside with some estimates pegging the global endpoint security market to be worth somewhere around $17.38 billion by 2020, there should be enough room for a few players to be quite successful. In 2016, Sentinel One launched a cybersecurity guarantee where the company promises to pay customers $1,000 per endpoint or $1 million per company in the event they experience a ransomware attack after installing Sentinel One's product. Last summer, the company hired industry veteran and White Hat security founder Jeremiah Grossman as chief of security strategy just three months after announcing that he would leave the firm he started 15 years prior. New investor Sound Ventures, a firm founded by actor Ashton Kutcher and Guy Osiri, participated in the funding. Existing investors, Third Point Ventures, Data Collective, Granite Hill part, uh, Capital Partners, Wesley Group, and Sinewave Ventures also participated in Sentinel One Series C Round. Wow, very cool stuff. A lot of money, <laughs> a lot of companies, a lot of capital. <laughs> so, Nick, Netflix, you know, the streaming app? Everybody loves Netflix. Absolutely. They make it so easy to binge watch on your favorite series. Remember you used to have to wait in the mail for, for <laughs> Netflix and then send it back? That yeah, was the coolest no. thing because it would come so quick and you would send it back and now it's like, hey, I want to watch it right now. Bang. Yeah. Now, now, now. So anyways, there's a fake Netflix app that takes control of Android devices and so the story behind that is there a recently spotted fake Netflix app is in fact installing a remote access Trojan rat variant on, onto the victim's devices. Zscaler security researchers have discovered. That's sneaky. <laughs> yeah. So preying on the popularity of applications isn't a new technique. With fake Super Mario Run games for Android recently used to distribute the Marcher and Droid Jack Trojans, now it seems that the actors be, be, behind the Spy Note rat have decided to use the same technique and leverage the enormous traction Netflix has among users looking to stream full movies and TV programs on their mobile devices. So instead of a video streaming app, however, users end up with a rat that can take advantage of their device in numerous ways, such as listening to live conversations by activating the mic, executing arbitrary commands, sending files to a CNC server, command and control, uh, recording screen captures, viewing contacts, and reading SMS messages. The fake Netflix app was supposedly created using an updated version of the SpyNote Rat Builder, 
which leaked online last year, Zscaler reveals. Once installed, the app would display the icon that the legitimate Netflix app on Google Play has, but it should by no means be mistaken for it. When the user clicks on the icon for the first time, it disappears from the home screen and nothing else happens, a trick commonly used by mobile malware. In the background, however, the malware starts preparing its onslaught of attacks. SpyNoteRat was found to use a free DNS service for CNC communication, as well as to leverage the services, broadcast receivers, and activity components of Android platform to remain up and running on the infected devices. Services can perform long-running operations in the background and does not need a user to interface. Broadcast receivers are Android components that can register themselves for particular events. Activities are key building blocks central to an app's navigation, for example, Zscaler researchers note. Additionally, the malware can uninstall apps from the infected devices, such as antivirus protections, was defined only over Wi-Fi to avoid raising suspicion and can even click photos, the security researcher says. SpyNote Rat also collects the device location to identify the exact location of the victim and picks various data exfiltration capabilities. According to Zscaler, the SpyNote Rat Builder was seen gaining popularity in the hacking community. It can be used to create various fake apps to masquerade the malware, such as WhatsApp, YouTube Video Downloader, Google Update, Instagram, Hack Wi-Fi, AirDroid, Wi-Fi Hacker, Facebook, Photoshop, Sky TV, Hotstar, Trump Dash, and Pokemon Go. The game was abused for malware distribution even before being launched on Android. Uh, so furthermore, we found that in just the first two weeks of 2017, there have been more than 120 uh, such spyware, spyware variants already built using the same SpyNote Trojan Builder as the SpyNote Rat and roaming in the wild, security researchers say. A similar trend is usually observed after the source code of a piece of malware leaks online. To stay protected, users should refrain from installing applications via third-party app stores or to sideload them, especially if they are games and haven't yet been released on Android, such as Super Mario Run or Pokemon Go. You should also avoid the temptation to play games from your sources other than legitimate app stores, such as games that are not safe and may bring harm to your reputation and your bank account. Zscaler concludes. So yet another example, <laughs> you have the Google Play Store, stick stick to stick to what you know. Right. I think they say stick to what you know, dance with the girl that brung you, <laughs> right? So that's what you need to do. Just stick with the regular app store, um, Google Play Store that's there. Don't shy away from it and just keep it moving. I was saying this is another example of why I stick with Apple and the Apple Store. Because I know I know well, they I know they vet a lot a lot of their stuff and yeah some stuff does are, come they through are very, but yeah, they're they're they very, very good stringent. yeah a, a lot yeah, of develop a lot of developers that I talk to say sometimes uh, they have to submit stuff three or four times because of their code so I'm like okay I like that <laughs> yeah absolutely and if I did get an Android I would just keep it on the regular Google Play Store no need to sideload or do third party but. Man, we covered a lot this week. You hear that music? We sure did. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, time to wrap it up. Just want to say real quick um, some infosex uh, events that are coming out. That are coming up. Um, RSA conference is going to be February the 13th at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. So if you haven't uh, signed up or registered, make sure you go to rsaconference.com. And of course, uh, here in Huntsville, they're having the National Cyber Summit coming up. Um, I believe that is in June 6th through the 8th. Uh, make sure you register for that at nationalcybersummit.com. There's going to be a lot of uh, good stuff going on there. And I also think there's some car hacking that's going to happen there, Matt. So 
Awesome. That's gonna we be... definitely can't wait to cover some of that stuff. Yeah. So, and we may see you guys out at some of these events. We're um, planning on mobilizing, getting on the road, and uh, and, and seeing y'all face to face. So, and uh, just keep sending in uh, your fan mail questions and all that stuff to uh, feedback at infosexsync.com or directly to Matt at infosexsync.com or Nick at infosexsync.com. And until then. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.